I will read in Genesis 32, beginning in verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him, and he limped. On his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, now speak your word to us with power. Father, may your grace be poured out upon us through your word, that we may be filled with wisdom, that we might serve you faithfully. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the history of God's people, who do you think is the most maligned, the most misunderstood? Who do you think in the whole history of God's people is the most slandered individual. Certainly there are figures we could point to, like say John Calvin or Martin Luther, who have been unjustly attacked in all kinds of ways over the last 500 years. If you go back to the early church, I'd say Athanasius was probably the most slandered, most maligned. Athanasius was seeking to defend the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, but he was attacked, he was exiled multiple times, Uh, He was seen as a villain when really he was simply defending God's truth. But I think the most slandered man in the Bible is Jacob. Jacob lived a hard life, a difficult life. And it's as if no good deed has gone unpunished. Uh, Jacob is described in Scripture as a blameless man, as a righteous man. But during the course of his life, he was mistreated by his father. He was hated by his brother. He was cheated by his uncle. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough of a beating, there are a lot of Bible commentators and preachers who have blamed him for everything he suffered as if he deserved it all. If there's any saint, if there's any member of the people of God who needs some PR help, it's Jacob. He's been maligned and misunderstood. He's been regarded as a scheming, good-for-nothing villain, 
uh, sort of trickster and a huckster, described as nothing but a sort of used car salesman on the pages of Scripture. But I don't think any of that's really fair. Today what I want to do is try to restore and rehabilitate this godly man's reputation. Uh, Every time a Christian family uh, has a son and names him Jacob, I'm always hopeful. Maybe they really understand the story. Maybe they're naming after their, their son after Jacob uh, because they understand his namesake, what his life really means. Uh, in the New Testament, the name Jacob gets turned into the name James. Jacob is the Hebrew version of the name. James is the Greek version of the name. But it's, it's the same. It's the same name. It's interesting to consider the name Jacob or James uh, in the New Testament. There were two men in the circle of Jesus' twelve apostles named James. And then Jesus also had a half-brother named James. Now, one of those Jameses wrote a letter uh, that is part of the New Testament scriptures for us, the letter of James. And actually, one reason why I want to look at Jacob's story today is because I'm going to start a sermon series uh, on the letter of James. I'm going to be preaching through the letter of James soon. And as you might expect, there are all kinds of connections between the story of Jacob in Genesis and the letter of James in the New Testament. So maybe you could even think of this sermon today as an introduction to our study of James. We're meeting James, who is Jacob, who's linked with Jacob uh, in the Old Testament. James and Jacob go together. The story of Jacob illustrates the lessons of the letter of James. Or you could say the letter of James translates Jacob's life story into doctrine and ethics. It applies the life story of Jacob to the New Covenant Church, drawing wise lessons from his life. Jacob is truly one of the fathers in the faith. He is a model for us to imitate. And if we misread his story, we're likely to misread our own stories. If we misread his life, misinterpret the events of his life, we're very likely to misread and misinterpret the events of our own lives. And so we need to get his story straight. Our Christian lives will be impoverished. Uh, There are certain aspects of the Christian life that we will miss if we do not rightly understand what God is doing in the life of Jacob. Now, uh, we only read one chapter. We've read chapter 32 uh, this morning. I think that's really the climactic chapter in the life of Jacob. It's really the key chapter uh, when it comes to interpreting his life. There's no way we could read the whole of his life story because actually it starts way back in Genesis 25 and Jacob doesn't die until Genesis 49. And so almost half of the book of Genesis is taken up with the life of Jacob. He's a key figure in basically half the book uh, of Genesis. But what I want to do this morning is hit on some of the major events of his life. If you grew up in the church going to Sunday school, you probably have heard most of these stories. Or if you're reading through the Bible, you uh, in a year-long kind of program like a lot of us are, you probably just read the life of Jacob not too long ago. So maybe some of these things will be fresh for you. If you haven't read the story, if you're not familiar with his life story, I'd encourage you to go home today and pick up in Genesis 25 and read through the end of the book. Uh, to get a feel for Jacob's whole life. But let me give you some of the uh, some of the major events that take place in his life. 
Jacob is a twin to Esau. He's got a twin brother, Esau. Uh, Jacob and Esau are born to Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah, like other wives of the patriarchs, had been barren, uh, but Isaac prays that she would conceive, and the Lord granted his plea. Now, while the boys were in her womb, they struggled together. Uh, and so Rebecca asked the Lord why. She knew this was rather unusual. And the Lord told her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body, and one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Essentially, what God tells Rebecca is there is a battle going on in your womb. This is the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. A battle that was set up in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve fall into sin, but God promises that through the woman there will be a seed of the woman who will bring victory, who will bring triumph, who will crush the serpent's head. This battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is taking place in your belly, in your very womb. Well, finally, the day to give birth arrives. Esau comes out first. Jacob is born second. Now, God had already made it clear that the second-born son would be the chosen one, the one to whom his promises would be given, the one who would belong to the seed line that would ultimately bring the Messiah into the world. God had chosen Jacob even in the womb. And that's crucial to the story because then very early on in the story, we're told that Isaac chose Esau. Isaac deliberately went against the revealed will of God in choosing Esau. He loved Esau. He preferred Esau. Indeed, we're told that uh, in Genesis 25, as the boys grew up, Uh, They took very different life paths. Uh, Esau became a man of the field, one who roamed around, a hunter, a wanderer. Whereas Genesis 25 tells us, and this is right at the beginning of the story, so we understand who he is, Jacob was a righteous man. Now, I have to tell you that uh, a lot of English translations uh, butcher Genesis 25, 27. But it's crucial to the story to get this right. It's it's like the Holy Spirit inspiring this story has given us an interpretive key right at the beginning so we will know how to look at Jacob all along the way. The Holy Spirit tells us Jacob is righteous. He's a righteous man. That word used to describe his righteousness, which sometimes gets translated as smooth, like he's a smooth man, not really even sure what that's supposed to mean. Uh, But uh, the word that's used there for Jacob in 25-27 is used for Noah back in Genesis chapter 6. Noah was spared when the flood came because he was righteous. That's the same word, his righteousness or blamelessness that's used of Jacob. Uh, It's used of Abraham in Genesis 17 when God says, walk before me and be righteous or be blameless. Well, that's what Jacob is doing. He's walking before the Lord in righteousness, in blamelessness. He is a man who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic promises belong to him because he's fulfilling the covenant. He's a man of faith and a man of integrity. He is a loyal covenant partner, a loyal son of the covenant. He keeps covenant with God by trusting and obeying God, even in the midst of great difficulty. The same word uh, is used of Job. When Job is described as a righteous or blameless man, in fact, there are a lot of connections between Jacob and Job. 
And it's the word that's used of the animal sacrifices that must be without blemish. Jacob is a man without blemish. He is a fit sacrifice for the Lord. Indeed, he offers himself to the Lord as an acceptable sacrifice. We're told at the very beginning, Jacob is a man who is maturing in righteousness, who has well-rounded righteousness. This kind of virtue characterizes his life. And we're told this very early on in the story, so we will know how to interpret his actions. This is a righteous man, a man who ought to always be given the benefit of the doubt. So I would say this. If your reading of the life story of Jacob leads to a different verdict than the one pronounced in God's word, you are reading the narrative wrong. If you see Jacob as a bad guy or basically a villain, as so many do, at least up to chapter 32, you're contradicting the evaluation that the word of God provides uh, for Jacob. Then there is the matter of their names. Uh, Jacob's name is going to be changed in Genesis 32, so we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, But the name he is originally given is another clue to the story. The name Jacob means something like heel grabber. That becomes clear in, uh, in Genesis 25 in the birth account. It's given to Jacob from the fact that as Esau was born, he was grabbing at Esau's heel. At birth, he's already grabbing on to Esau. A little bit later, Genesis 27:36 suggests that his name means supplanter or replacer, one who takes the place of another. And that is exactly what he will do. He will take Esau's place. His name tells you the trajectory of his life. He will take Esau's place as the firstborn son. God says so while the boys are still in their mother's womb. Jacob grabs Esau in the womb as they're being delivered. And his name reveals his role, his destiny. He will be the one who overtakes Esau. He will prevail over Esau. He's going to supplant Esau. He's going to be stronger than Esau. He will replace Esau. The Lord has said so. When Genesis 25 describes Esau as a hunter and Jacob as righteous, Again, a lot of times this is misunderstood. Sometimes it's thought, oh, Esau, well, he's a man's man, obviously. He's hairy, he must be big and strong, he's a hunter out in the fields. And then you've got Jacob, who seems to be a mama's boy. But that's not really the kind of contrast that's being made. The contrast is not in vocation or in personality or in their respective degrees of masculinity. No, the contrast we have between Jacob and Esau is a contrast in their respective characters. It it tells us about their relationship with God. Esau, in terms of the book of Genesis, when he's described as one who roams about hunting and, and so forth, he's really being described in the same way as Nimrod and Cain who are certainly godless men in the book of Genesis, men who roamed around. That's what we see in Esau. He is an uncontrolled, aggressive, impulsive, irresponsible, short-sighted man. Esau is a hunter-gatherer. He's a sort of throwback. He's He's a man who refuses to settle down. He's not the kind of man who could ever build or contribute to civilization in any kind of way. He's not a man who can manage anything that he's given. He's not a good decision maker. He's not a stable man. 
By contrast, you've got Jacob, who is described as righteous. And we see in Jacob, he is the responsible man, the stable man who manages the land and the household. He is the dominion man, the man who rules, the man who knows how to serve and contribute and build. He's a man who knows how to practice delayed gratification. In fact, if you do the chronology, I won't do this this morning, but if you the chronology, you see that Jacob continually has to wait on things. He's a man who waits and waits and waits. He practices delayed gratification. He's the level-headed man of wisdom, the prudent man who can make a plan and execute it. He's the one who is fit to rule. Not Esau. Jacob. Jacob is the stronger man. He's shrewd. He's strategic. Jacob is the real man here, the real model of masculinity here, not Esau. Esau is the perpetual adolescent who refuses to grow up, who takes pagan wives, who never learns self-control or self-discipline, a man who never learns patience. But it's interesting, as the story unfolds, we find their father Isaac prefers Esau And this seems to be because Isaac, at least at this point in his life, whatever else we might say about Isaac's life, at this point in his life, in this stage of his life, he has made his belly his God. And he prefers Esau because of the meat Esau brings him. He likes the barbecue that Esau brings him, and he falls into that trap of therefore preferring this son, even though he's a reckless and impatient man, a godless man. A man who makes terrible decisions. Isaac still prefers him. Well, what then about the birthright? The first really big story we're told about Jacob and Esau concerns the birthright. Contrary to what some say, Jacob did not cheat or swindle Esau out of his birthright. God had already revealed the birthright was Jacob's. God wanted Jacob to have it. And so Jacob wisely shrewdly found a way to make it legally his fair and square. Again, we'll see throughout the story, Jacob is wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. He continually outwits uh, those who would oppose him and oppress him. He's a cunning man, but cunning in a righteous sort of way. And so one day Esau comes into camp and Esau's famished, he's hungry, and Jacob sees his opportunity. He knows what kind of man he's dealing with. Jacob is cooking a stew, and Esau comes in from the field, and he says, give me some of that red stuff, for I am weary. The word that Esau uses to describe the stew is a word that describes blood. Maybe he thinks it's a blood soup or a blood stew, and Esau wants to drink blood as if he could get life from the blood, but that's something God has forbidden. And indeed, the narrator tells us it's not blood stew, it's not blood soup, it's actually lentil stew. So Jacob responds, he says, sell me your birthright. And Esau says, I'm about to die, what good is this birthright to me anyway? And so he makes an oath to seal the deal. He gives his birthright to Jacob in exchange for a bowl of soup. And that tells you everything you need to know about Esau. See, that birthright, that really summed up Esau's place in the covenant family of God. It represented his place in the messianic seed line. It was tied to God's promises, to Abraham, to circumcision, to the coming Messiah. And Esau despised it all. And so this part of the story 
does not end, and thus Jacob stole Esau's birthright, as if Jacob were the one at fault. No, this part of the story ends, and thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, we might say, oh, but shouldn't Jacob have just given his brother a bowl of stew without demanding anything? Wouldn't that have been the brotherly thing to do, especially if Esau was near death, as he said? Why would you treat somebody who's starving to death this way? Well, Esau wasn't really actually near death, and the text shows us that. The text says Jacob gave Esau some bread and some of the stew, and then it says Esau ate, drank, arose, and left. In fact, the verbs there just come in that kind of machine gun, rapid fire style to show us that really this is not a man who was near death. Had he been near death, he would have needed more time to recuperate. No, Esau is like a child who can think of nothing but his hunger in the moment. He's like his dad. Isaac has become controlled by his appetites, dominated by fleshly desires. A man who has no self-control. A man who can't even take dominion over himself. So I'd ask you this question to kind of put in perspective what Esau did. Let's say you were hungry. Would you trade the promises of God for a bowl of soup? Would you give away your place in God's family? Would you give away your place as a member of God's family, God's church, for a bowl of soup? I don't think so. At least I hope not. Uh, I hope no matter how hungry you were, you would not give up your membership in Christ's body for some stew. That's not a good trade. It shows you wouldn't, if you do that kind of thing, you don't have your priorities in, in, in the right order. But that's what Esau does because he is a godless man. Again, this shows us what kind of fool he is. And it shows us how shrewd Jacob is. He knew this was an opportunity to get what God said was his in a legal fair and square kind of way. Jacob tested Esau, and Esau failed. And he failed a food test. He's just like the first Adam, only concerned with feeding himself, trading the glory of God for a few bites of a meal. Well, then that sets us up for the next big story in Genesis 27, when Jacob actually receives the inheritance. Rebekah and Jacob plot together. They work together to deceive Isaac so Jacob can receive what is rightfully his. Rebecca comes up with this plan. She's the one who really concocts this plan because she can see that her husband Isaac has become a fool. He will foolishly go against God's will if left to himself. Isaac has become blind, not only physically, but morally and spiritually. The man can't make a good judgment. In preferring Esau to Jacob, he hates what God loves and loves what God hates. In fact, Isaac is so reckless, he plans to give the whole inheritance to Esau with nothing left for Jacob. That's his wicked plan. Usually the firstborn would get a double share of the inheritance, but there would still be something for the other son. In this case, Isaac wants to literally enslave Jacob to Esau by giving Jacob nothing. And Rebecca knows this will be a disaster. This will go against God's revealed plan, God's revealed design. And so Rebecca fights back the way godly women in Scripture so often do when confronted with tyranny. See, Eve was deceived by the serpent in Genesis 3. So how do women fight back against serpent figures? 
by using deception. She plots deception against her own husband for the sake of righteousness. We see godly women doing this again and again, using deception to fight against tyranny. We might think of uh, the Egyptian midwives who deceived the tyrant Pharaoh in order to save the Jewish baby boys. And God clearly blessed and rewarded their act of deception. It was righteous deception. Or we might think of the case of Rahab who deceived the Canaanite king and saved the Jewish spies. Indeed, Rahab's story, of course, is important to the book of James. So there's a link. Righteous deception in James, righteous deception here in the book of Jacob. There are cases, and granted, they are rare. Normally, we're supposed to tell the truth to one another. But there are cases of justified deception, of righteous deception, and this is one of them. And so what does Rebecca do? She has Jacob dress up like Esau. He puts on garments that will make him feel and smell like Esau. He, uh, Rebecca gives to Jacob the kind of food that Esau would bring to Isaac, that he would prepare for Isaac. And so Jacob brings this to Isaac. Jacob impersonates his brother to his father. Now before we criticize him, remember he has a legal right to supplant Esau in this way. He has a divine right to Esau's inheritance. He could lawfully take Esau's clothes and name and food and inheritance. He could legally do this. And so that's what he does. Mother and son act in concert, in wisdom, to fulfill God's command that the younger take the place of the older. And Jacob receives this blessing from his father. The blessing the father wanted to give to Esau is given to Jacob. Now, of course, you might imagine there'd be fallout from this, and you know how the story goes. You know what happens next. Esau comes in just a bit later, and suddenly he and Isaac realize what has happened. They realize what Jacob has done. Isaac responds by trembling with fear. He realizes he's been exposed as going against God's will. It seems to be the fear of repentance, trembling in repentance. It's the same word that's used later when Joseph's brothers realize that Joseph has deceived them and the way they had mistreated Joseph has been exposed. They tremble violently. That's what happens to Isaac here. He trembles violently in repentance. And indeed, I think he is repentant because later on, He doesn't try to undo what he's done. Instead, he confirms it. He confirms Jacob's right to the inheritance and blesses him again, this time knowingly and by faith in Genesis 28. And I think you can say Rebecca, by outwitting her husband in this cunning sort of way, has actually led her husband to repentance, which might have been her plan all along. But Esau responds in a very different way. He goes into a rage against Jacob. He becomes like Cain and wants to turn Jacob into his Abel. He wants to kill Jacob. Now, it's interesting. In the book of James, one thing we're going to see as we go through James, one thing we will see a lot is James gives wisdom about how to deal with anger and injustice and persecution. How to avoid violent situations that can, uh, how to avoid violent situations from starting and then escalating. James has a lot lot to say about how to defuse potentially violent situations with those who hate you or those who are out to get you. That's a major theme in Jacob's story. That's something Jacob does again and again. It's another link between Jacob and James. 
In this case, what does Jacob do? He wisely runs away. He goes into exile. It's interesting. In the Cain and Abel story, Cain murders Abel, and then Cain has to go into exile. But in this case, Jacob, in a sense, suffers the punishment his brother deserves. He goes into exile. Here, the Cain figure wants to murder the Abel figure, but the Abel figure goes into exile, taking the curse his brother really deserves, but all in order to avoid a bloody confrontation. And I'll just throw this in there here, even though it doesn't really belong here. It should be noted that in the end, the brothers are reconciled. And they are reconciled because Jacob ends up sharing some of his inheritance with Esau voluntarily. He pacifies Esau with gifts, with generosity, with kindness, with a soft answer. And again, there's a lesson for the church, and it's one that the book of James brings out as well. But that comes at the end. I I don't want to run ahead to that here. For now, know that Esau is in a rage, and so Jacob flees. Jacob escapes the rage of Esau. But for all Jacob knows, Esau continues to want to kill him. Jacob ends up at his uncle Laban's house. And you might think, oh, this is family. Surely Laban will take him in and treat him right. But again, he finds himself dealing with a wicked man who wants to take advantage of him and oppress him. Jacob wants to marry one of Laban's daughters. Unlike Esau, he wants to marry within the covenant. Laban agrees to it. If Jacob will work for seven years, he can marry Rachel. So he agrees to it. Then he finds that Laban has deceived him by giving him the wrong sister. And so he ends up marrying Leah. I guess they didn't take the veil off until after the ceremony. And he marries the wrong girl, which means he's going to become an unintentional polygamist. And so he ends up having to work another seven years to gain the hand of his beloved Rachel. Now, some like to see this as payback. See, the trickster Jacob got tricked. The deceiver gets deceived. But that's not the way the text reads. That's not actually the way the story goes. In fact, what we find is while Jacob is in exile at Laban's house, God prospers him. Because God is with him, somehow he is able to make his flocks increase in an amazing way. You can read about it. It's very mysterious how Jacob does this. But he gets the best of Laban, even though Laban continually mistreats him and tries to steal from him and is constantly changing his wages. God has given Jacob dominion, dominion over the flocks. And so his flocks get bigger and stronger. And, of course, Laban doesn't like this. Jacob is a man of wisdom and dominion. And Genesis chapter 30 ends by telling us he had become exceedingly prosperous. But Laban, of course, becomes increasingly jealous, which means it is increasingly dangerous for Jacob to stay there. And so once again, Jacob has to flee. He is a man constantly on the run from wicked oppressors. But just as Pharaoh would later pursue the Israelites in the Exodus, so here Laban pursues Jacob. And actually there are all kinds of connections between what Jacob does here as he flees and the Exodus story that will happen later, uh, even the way that the false gods are humiliated and Jacob leaves with plunder and so forth. Jacob is clearly in the right and clearly has the blessing of God. Jacob, but, but, but Jacob finds himself in a seemingly impossible situation. Just as the Israelites seem to get stuck between the Red Sea and the pursuing army of Pharaoh, so Jacob seems to get stuck 
Behind him, Laban is pursuing. And Laban can't be trusted no matter what he says. Even if Laban agrees to something, you can't expect him to keep the agreement. So he's got Laban pursuing from behind. Out in front of him is Esau, the red man. At last parting, Esau was angry enough to kill him. Esau has at least 400 men in his army. So what is he going to do? It seems like he's in this vice being squeezed between Laban and Esau, two enemies. Now Jacob wisely seeks to pacify them. We read this morning in Genesis 32 how he seeks to, to pacify Esau by giving him gifts. But just as he's not sure he can really trust Laban to keep his word and keep the peace, he's not really sure he can trust this peace with Esau to hold either. Here's Jacob. He sought to live a faithful life. He's just tried to do what is right. But along the way, he has accumulated a lot of enemies. People who for no good reason are out to get him. But as we see in Genesis 32, Jacob has committed his way to the Lord. He knows the Lord has made promises to him. He knows the Lord has chosen him. He knows the Lord has shown mercy to him, mercies he didn't deserve. He knows the Lord has prospered him. Even now, he's seeking to be obedient to the Lord. And so what does he do? Again, Jacob acts in wisdom. He splits up his company in two. So at least if Esau does come against him, or if Laban does come against him, he'll be forced to choose which group to attack, and maybe some of them will get out unscathed. And then Jacob goes off that night by himself. And then in the darkness of night, a man begins to wrestle with him. Now, if the declaration that Jacob is righteous in Genesis 25 is the key to interpreting Jacob's actions in the story, this wrestling match in Genesis 32 is the key to interpreting God's actions in the story. Here we learn what God has been up to in Jacob's life. Jacob might have wondered, who is this man who has come to wrestle with me in the darkness of the night? Is it my father Isaac who's decided that really it was wrong for me to take the inheritance from Esau after all and who wants to fight me at night so it'll be more of a fair fight since he's blind and in the darkness I won't be able to see either. Is it Isaac? Is it Esau, my estranged brother, who I've been wrestling with since we were in the womb together? When we shared the womb we were wrestling, has Esau come to fight me in the middle of the night? He's always been an angry and impulsive man. Maybe he's come to make good on his threat to kill me here. Or is it Laban, my jealous uncle, who hates the fact that I've been prosperous at his expense? Laban, who could never be trusted. Who is it? Jacob had to wonder. Well, in a sense, it's all of these men, all of these enemies. But of course, actually, as Jacob discovers, it is the Lord who has come to wrestle with him. Because behind all of these other wrestling matches, his wrestling matches with Jake, with, with Esau, with Laban, with Isaac, behind all of those wrestling matches that have gone on in his life, Jacob has really been wrestling with the Lord himself. In other words, God put those evil men in Jacob's life to strengthen him, to mature him. The same way a father might get down on the ground and wrestle with his son in order to toughen his son up. That's what the Lord has been doing 
with Jacob. He's been wrestling with Jacob to make him tougher, to make him stronger, to make him wiser. In this wrestling match in the middle of the night, Jacob is learning the role these other men have played in his life in God's grand plan. Jacob's struggles with these men are really struggles with God. It was really all one big wrestling match with God. And what does the Lord say at the end of the match? Jacob is not rebuked for anything. Jacob is declared the victor. The Lord holds up Jacob's hand and says, You have prevailed! And so he says, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and men and prevailed. Specifically, we could say he struggled with God through the difficult men God brought into his life. Behind all of those struggles, all of those trials with Isaac and Esau and Laban stood the Lord himself. And because Jacob has remained faithful, even in great trial, he has prevailed. He is one in the only way that matters. He's a champion in the only way that matters. He's victorious. He has prevailed over Isaac, Laban, and Esau. He's become a champion because he has run his course with faithfulness. Indeed, James 1 explains what God was doing in Jacob's life. There James says, My brothers, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. That is, when you encounter Isaac's and Laban's and Esau's in your life. Count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and patience completes its perfect work so that you are mature and whole, lacking nothing. So then even if you need wisdom, you won't lack for wisdom. God will give you wisdom. Jacob is preeminently the wise man, the man of wisdom. He is preeminently the patient man who waits on God again and again. The man who grows in character and virtue and wisdom through trial. Now let me ask you, does your life ever feel like one big wrestling match? Like you're just on the mat with God, wrestling with Him, and it's all just one big struggle? Does your life ever feel like one big trial after another? You come through one trial and you think, okay, I can catch my breath now, and then another one hits you right in the gut. And then another trial is trying to get you in a headlock after that. And these trials are trying to take you down. Does your life seem like one difficult situation after another? Like you're constantly caught in the vice grip between a rock and a hard place, between an Esau and a Laban. Does it feel like you're wrestling in the dark and you don't even really know who your opponent is? Well, this story shows you what's going on. Like Jacob, God is taking you from glory to glory. He is strengthening you and maturing you and toughening you. He's teaching you and training you. The way a coach does an athlete, he's wrestling with you for your own good. The testing of your faith, like the testing of Jacob's faith, produces patience and patience completes its work, making you perfect and whole, lacking nothing. These trials, these struggles, these wrestling matches train you in wisdom and bring you to maturity. So God can hold up your arm and say, here is one who has prevailed. Here is a champion. See, Jacob was a fighter. He was a wrestler. He was a struggler. And you've got to be a fighter as well. 
God wants you to be one who struggles, one who wrestles, one who fights. One who fights the good fight. One who prevails. God's, it's interesting, God is not just fighting Jacob's sin. If this was just about Jacob's sin, it would make no sense for God, allow, for God to allow Jacob to prevail. It's not really about sin. It's about maturation. God fights Jacob so he will grow and be transformed. Because salvation is not just about deliverance from sin. Salvation is ultimately about maturing. It's about becoming more and more glorious. It's about growing in wisdom. It's about becoming patient and wise. And this is what God is producing in Jacob's life through these struggles. And we know this is not just God's will for Jacob. It's His will for all His people. God wanted His whole people to be a nation of wrestlers. And that's why God renames Jacob Israel, and then Israel becomes the name not just of the man, but of the whole nation. The whole nation takes its name from Israel because all of God's people are to wrestle with Him and with men and prevail. This is so important. God names His nation after this truth. Israel means God's wrestler. One who wrestles with God. That's what our lives are about. In all your trials, all your struggles. If you feel like life is a sort of obstacle course, well, understand it is. You know, life is a kind of obstacle course designed to bring you to a glorious finish line so you can wear the crown in the end. Life is not supposed to be easy. Because if it was easy, we wouldn't learn anything. We're not to go to, from comfort to comfort. No, we go from glory to glory. But we get greater glory through suffering, through struggle, through wrestling. This is what happens in Jacob's life. And understand, even if you get knocked down along the way, even if you get wounded along the way, there's still victory. Because this is Jacob's life too. As they were wrestling, the Lord touched the socket of his hip and gave him a wound. And we find at the end of the story that now Jacob is a cripple. Jacob will limp from now on, but he will limp to victory. That's the picture. I want you to picture Jacob limping across the finish line. That's Jacob's life. That's our lives as well. That's Jacob. That's you and me. We're all crippled. But winning, wounded, but winning, we are limping to victory as the sun rises and the day breaks. We are limping to victory, knowing God is with us, even in the midst of our struggles and trials. I want you to think about this. If Jacob had not wrestled and been struck in the hip by God, he also would have missed out on God's blessing. The wound and the blessing go together. You can't have the blessing without the wrestling match. You can't have the blessing or the victory without the wounding. They go together. Trust God that your limps are a sign of His blessing. God's wounds are a sign that He's with you. He's wounding you for your own good. Know that through your struggles and your trials, you are coming to see the face of God. Had Jacob not struggled with God in this way, he never would have seen God's face. 
But that's the promise held out to us. You want to be a victor? You want to be a champion? You want to have God hold your arm up and say, here is one who has prevailed? You want to see the very face of God? You want God's blessing? Then wrestle with God. And no matter how difficult it is, no matter how big the trial, no matter what kind of Esau's and Laban's and Isaac's you have to face, and of course it's not just difficult people, it can be difficult circumstances, difficult situations too. Whatever obstacles and trials you face, know that God is at work in the midst of them for your good to make you into the kind of mature man or woman He wants you to be. A man or woman of glory. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You indeed for this story, the life of Jacob. May we learn lessons from our Father in the faith. May we imitate Him in the way He wrestled with God and with men and prevailed. May we prevail as well that we too might wear the victor's crown of glory in the end. No matter how much You may wound us, no matter how bad our limp is, no matter how crippled we are, by Your grace, may we cross the finish line knowing that You have been with us, that this race has been for our good. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.